Hello there, I'm John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show where we raid the journalistic fridge, take out some news that's a few days old, sprinkle over some spices in our secret sauce, heat it up, serve it up to you, steaming and delicious. The show is brought to you by the good people at Crux. That's your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Here's what's on the menu this week. A bombshell in the United States, a leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision indicates that the highest court in the land is poised to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion. We'll break down what that's going to mean, including what it means for the Catholic Church in America. The Vatican trial of the century features cardinals crossing swords. We heard testimony this past week from the superstar defendant in the case, Italian Cardinal Angelo Beichu, who denied all of the charges. And we also heard from Australian Cardinal George Pell, who, quite frankly, isn't buying it. We'll explain. The Pope in a wheelchair. For the first time this week, we saw Pope Francis in a wheelchair. This, of course, related to the problems he's having with osteoarthritis in his knee. We'll talk about what implications that might have for the Pope's activity coming up and broader implications for papal health. And finally, we're going to end this week with a shout out to the Savinia, where really big Catholic things come in a very small package. That's what we've got for you. So please, for the love of God, don't go anywhere because I will be right back. All right, well, listen, happy Tuesday to you. Happy May 10th in the year of our Lord, 2022. I want to note that today is an extremely special day. This is bigger than, than any, any ecclesiastical feast on the liturgical calendar, as far as I'm concerned, because today is the birthday of my wife, Elise, who is actually filming this video. Say hello, Elise, to the nice people. Hello, everyone. She's behind the camera, but I promise you she's there. This is her compleanno, as we would say in Italian. And so, Elise, happy birthday, many happy returns, ad multos annos. So, we begin today with the dominant story in the United States right now, which is this leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision that, in effect, would overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that effectively legalized abortion in America. Now, Everyone has emphasized that while the draft is authentic, it is just that, a draft. And before the ruling becomes official, justices on the Supreme Court could change their votes. They could change the reasoning behind those votes. So nothing is official yet. The ruling is expected to come out sometime over the summer. People are saying probably late summer. But in any event, that hasn't stopped anyone from reacting to this draft, because assuming that this draft is a reasonably faithful indication of the eventual decision we're going to get, it would mean a changed political and legal landscape in America vis-a-vis -vis the abortion question. Now, let's be very clear. The fact that Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned, according to this draft, 
does not mean that we are going to go from a situation in which abortion is legal in America to a situation in which abortion is uniformly illegal. In effect, what this decision will do is return the decision to the states. There are, of course, 50 states in, in America, and they will now be able to set their own abortion policies, uh, again, assuming that this ruling holds up. And what that is likely to mean is that a number of states will either make abortion illegal or will severely curtail access to it. There are actually a number of states in America that already have on their books what are called trigger laws, which basically means that if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, then previous legislation banning abortion automatically comes back into force, so they don't have to do anything. If the Supreme Court issues this decision automatically and immediately, we would go back to a situation in which abortion is essentially illegal. Other states are likely to pass new legislation, again, either making abortion illegal or severely restricting access to it. However, there are yet other states which are likely to enshrine abortion access into state law, if anything, likely to expand it. And it probably won't surprise you to, to hear that those states likely to restrict abortion are basically red states in which Republicans are in charge. Those states likely to protect and even expand abortion rights are blue states where Democrats are in charge. Now, there are probably three major implications of all of this that are worth noting. First, abortion will continue to be available in America no matter what happens with the Supreme Court, but you may have to travel to get it. The second implication is that how available abortion is and where it's available is probably going to depend on which way the political winds are blowing. For instance, let's take, let's take an example. The state of Texas currently is a very red state. It is governed by a Republican governor. But let's assume the winds were to change in Texas and that Texans were to elect a Democratic legislature or a Democratic governor. It could be that Texas would shift from being a state in which abortion is essentially non-existent to a state in which abortion is widely available. And then let's assume that Texas in the next election cycle would elect a Republican again. Well, then we could go back to a situation in which access to abortion is tightly restricted. In other words, abortion is going to become a political football, and it's going to be a political football that is not fought out, fought over rather, predominantly in Washington, but it's going to be at the state level. So there will be 50 different arenas in which this fight is, is unfolding. And we're not just talking about right now, we're not talking about a once and for all settlement of abortion policy in America, but rather we're talking about an ongoing fight over abortion access. In effect, what this Supreme Court decision would mean is that abortion, almost by definition, will be a voting issue in every American election at both the national and the state level that we can imagine for the foreseeable future. In other words, if anybody thought that this decision was going to settle the abortion debate in America, uh-uh, no, not going to happen. 
if anything, it is going to dial the abortion debate up and make it, in a sense, more local. Now, the third implication worth noting is that it is the effect of this decision is going to be to enshrine the Catholic Church as a central player in abortion politics in America. Now, of course, it already has been. I mean, since 1973, the Catholic Church in America has been known politically more than anything else, really, for its pro-life position, that is, its advocacy against abortion. But that is going to be exacerbated by the effect of this decision. I mean, first of all, let's just pause for a moment to absorb the fact that the five justices who, according to the draft, who were going to sign off on this decision overturning Roe v. Wade, those would be Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, all five of them are Catholic. Actually, if you add in Justice Sonia Minor, who would be part of the minority on this decision, six of the nine Supreme Court justices in America are Catholic. What that means is Catholics may be one quarter of the American population, but we are two thirds of the United States Supreme Court, which is a remarkable fact in and of itself. But the fact that all five justices who are going to sign off on, on this ruling, again, assuming it holds up, are Catholic, will mean that the Catholic Church is going to be seen by both sides of the abortion debate as the central protagonist in this decision. So that if you are a pro-lifer in America, you are going to be profoundly grateful to the Catholic Church and to these Catholic justices. If you are a pro-choice person in America, you are going to be probably outraged at the Catholic Church. This past weekend, there were protests planned at Catholic churches across the country to express unhappiness at the, the effect of the Supreme Court decision. And of course, the reason those, were being, those protests were being staged outside Catholic churches is precisely the perception that the Catholic influence in America, and particularly the Catholic imprint on these justices, is probably the prime mover in what is happening vis-a-vis abortion policy in the country. We should also make clear that the fact that this is now going to be a fight that occurs at the state level means that state conferences of Catholic bishops are going to be very important players in abortion politics in America. And that's true both in red states and blue states. In red states, they would be part of the majority seeking to restrict access to abortion. In blue states, they would be the primary voice of the opposition to the idea of trying to enshrine abortion access into law. So, bottom line, this decision changes the calculus in America in some ways, but in other ways, it simply ratifies and expands what had already been the role of the Catholic Church as a major protagonist in what is America's most toxic, unsettled political question which is the abortion question. And so this is not by any means, even assuming this ruling comes out exactly as written in the draft, 
This is not the end of the story, ladies and gentlemen. This is the beginning of a new and potentially even more conflictual chapter for the Catholic Church. All right, let's set aside tensions and acrimony and finger-pointing in the United States and turn to tensions, acrimony, and finger-pointing here in the Vatican, because we had plenty of that last week as well. What I have dubbed the Vatican's trial of the century, this is this mega-trial that centers on a $400 million London property deal that went horribly wrong and that has 10 defendants in the dock, including for the very first time a cardinal of the Catholic Church. This is the first time a prince of the church has ever faced civil charges in a Vatican tribunal. Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who was the Pope's former chief of staff, he held a position called the, the sostituto or the substitute in the Secretary of State, basically the number two official. And he acted, as I say, that position acts as the Pope's chief of staff. He's the guy who's primarily responsible for day-to-day -day church governance. I mean, to try to underline how important this role has been historically, by tradition, the substitute is the only Vatican official who does not need an appointment to see the Pope. He can just walk over and bang on the door of the Casa Santa Marta and say, hey, you know, we need to talk about X, because he's supposed to be the Pope's right hand. And Angelo Becciu played that role. He played it under Benedict XVI and then under Pope Francis. And Becciu now stands accused of financial corruption, that is, having embezzled some funds from the Vatican to support, well, basically his relatives, in his native Sardinia, and also having been culpable in that London property deal of having connived with various shady Italian financiers and so forth to fleece the Vatican of tens of millions of euro. So finally, Becciu had his day in court this past week. He testified for a few hours, two and a half hours, essentially, were occupied by Bechu reading a prepared statement. Now, think about that for a moment. He had a prepared statement that took him two and a half hours to read aloud in court. This is not a guy who is going gently into that good night, right? And the gist of this statement was to deny all of the charges, to argue that he has been the victim of a massive global campaign of character assassination and that he's being made a scapegoat. So on this charge that he diverted Vatican money to his relatives in Sardinia who ran various Catholic charities there, he insisted that his relatives never saw a dime and all of that money was legitimately allocated. On the London property deal, basically, he said that he was simply doing what his superiors, that is the Cardinal Secretary of State and the Pope, wanted him to do, and that he did not himself profit from it in any way. On other matters, the Cardinal Bechu has also been faulted for allocations of money that went to a lay Italian woman who is a kind of security consultant for humanitarian organizations. Her name is Cecilia Marogna. And on that front, the Cardinal said that, yes, it's true, the Secretary of State on his watch paid money to Maronia, 
But that money was, at least in theory, supposed to secure the release of a Colombian nun who had been kidnapped in Mali. And he argued that that outlay of funds was directly, personally, and explicitly approved by Pope Francis, who told him that only he, that is the Pope, only the Pope and Bechu were supposed to know what was going on. So basically, Bechu's argument there was, hey, this is what I was simply doing what the Pope wanted. And finally, Bechu addressed the contention, which is not actually part of the charges against him, but it's kind of out there in the air. He addressed the contention that as the sostituto, he had used Vatican money to pay off people in Australia to manufacture sex abuse charges against Cardinal George Pell, who was a longtime rival and kind of sparring partner of Bechu. Bechu denied all of that as well. He then took questions from one of the prosecutors in the case, a lay Italian lawyer by the name of Alessandro Didi, and essentially repeated his denials. It, it took so much time for him to read his prepared statement that Didi actually didn't get all of his questions asked, so the trial will resume on May 18th with Bechu once again in the dock. Now, in the meantime, based on what Bechu did say during his testimony, Cardinal George Pell decided that he was going to wade into the debate. He released a public statement after Bechu's testimony, basically saying that, well, you know, what Bechu said may technically be true, but it is radically incomplete. Now, let's recall that Cardinal George Pell was brought in by Pope Francis in 2014 to be the very first Secretary of the Economy, which was supposed to be the tip of the spear for financial reform in the Vatican. And I think it is fair to say that Cardinal Pill saw the Vatican Secretariat of State, and in particular, then Archbishop Angelo Becciu, as, well, certainly not the good guys in the story. He saw them as part of the problem. He and Bechu clashed swords repeatedly during Pell's tenure. And so in his statement, he said, well, what Bechu forgot to mention is that while he was the sustituto, he actually blocked Pell's effort to hire Price PricewaterhouseCooperhouse, I believe. Is that right, at least? PricewaterhouseCooper. PricewaterhouseCooper. Anyway, one of the big international accounting firms, firms to conduct an independent external audit of the Vatican. Pell's charges that Bechu blocked that. And Pell also accused Bechu of being behind the firing of the Vatican's first auditor general, that's a, that is its own in-house auditor, an Italian layman by the name of Libero Milone. And so, I mean, Pell wanted to say, basically, that Bechu clearly, according to Pell, was an enemy of financial reform. Now, as far as these payouts to Australia go, Pell said that there remain significant unanswered questions and that what Bechu had to say explains where part of the money went. By the way, I should say that Bechu's defense, basically, is that this money from the Vatican to Australia was meant to purchase an internet domain name. They wanted the .catholic domain name 
in Australia. And so they paid an IT firm in Australia, Australia to get that. Pell is saying that explains part of the expenses, but not all of them. And he said it is still unclear where about $1.6 million actually ended up. The clear suggestion is that it may have ended up in the pockets of people who were involved in the sexual abuse allegations against Cardinal Pell. Remember that Pell was accused of sexual abuse in Australia. He was actually eventually convicted and spent about 400 days in jail before Australia's high court tossed it out, saying that a reasonable person would not have concluded that Pell was guilty. And Pell remains convinced that it is at least possible that Bechu, his enemy in the Vatican, was behind his legal troubles. He concluded with the famous phrase of Francis Bacon, truth is the daughter of time. We will see how all this plays out, but I think it is safe to say there are at least some people, including Cardinal George Pell, who did not find Cardinal Bechu's testimony this past week entirely convincing. All right, let us shift to the papal health front which, as Pope's age, is always a front-burner topic of a conversation in the Vatican. So Pope Francis this past week, for the very first time, was seen in public being moved around in a wheelchair. This, of course, because of knee problems that the Pope has been experiencing. He apparently has osteoarthritis in his knees. He discussed this in a recent interview with the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera. And the the way the Pope phrased it gave rise to some speculation that he might have to have knee replacement surgery. In fact, the Vatican has clarified that at least for now, surgery is not on on the table, so to speak. And then instead, they're going to try to treat this with, well, what the Italians charmingly call infiltrations which sounds like something from a John le Carre spy novel, right? I'm going to infiltrate this place. But all the Italians mean by that is a shot, right? Injection. And one of the treatments for osteoarthritis is injections of anti-inflammatory drugs. That apparently is what is being tried now to see if that will resolve the problem. Of course, if it doesn't, surgery remains an option somewhere down the line. In the meantime, none of this appears to be slowing Pope Francis down. It is still speculated, though not officially confirmed, that he's going to try to go to Lebanon in June. It is on the calendar and official that he is planning to go to South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo in July. And it is also speculated and, I don't know, like semi-confirmed, but not officially so by the Vatican, that there are also trips to Canada and even Kazakhstan planned for later in the summer. Now, exactly how Pope Francis is going to move around during those trips is not clear. It is possible that he might have to use a wheelchair or, or some other device to get him around when he is in these places. Remember that during the, the late John Paul years, although he didn't really use a wheelchair, he would use a mobile platform that was the functional equivalent of a wheelchair that would get him around to one place or another. We'll see if that has to be the case for the Pope during his peregrinations this summer. The broader question this raises, of course, 
is, you know, for a pope who is an octogenarian by now and who has had various health struggles, I mean, he had colon surgery last summer. We know he's missing part of one lung. He's long suffered from sciatica. Now he has this problem in his knees. You know, the question that some people are asking is, how much longer can he go on? And related to that, how much can he govern effectively while he's trying to deal with all of these problems? And frankly, what I think is likely to happen in the short term is that as Francis has to deal with these various medical issues that he faces, there will probably be a tendency increasingly for people to ask, well, who's actually in charge? You know, because we're going to continue to get these statements from the Vatican saying, the Pope has appointed so-and-so as a bishop, or the Pope has released this legal ruling, or the Pope has approved this project. And depending on how things play out, it may be abundantly clear that given his physical limits, the Pope can't possibly himself have done all of those things. And so people are going to be probably speculating about who's actually making these decisions, whether it's happening in the Secretariat of State, whether it's some key papal advisor, like is Jesuit father Antonio Spadaro, one of the Pope's closest allies and the editor of the Jesuit-run magazine, Civiltà Cattolica, is he whispering in the Pope's ear and driving some of these decisions? Is Bishop Victor Fernandez in Argentina, his closest theological advisor, is he actually the Svengali behind the scenes? And we'll probably hear a lot of that kind of talk. And all I can say to you is, as this plays itself out, please do remember this is hardly the first time we've been down this road. During the late John Paul years, there was constant speculation about who was actually calling the shots. As far back as Pius Twelfth, you may remember, as Pius Twelfth aged, there was speculation about who was actually, you know, moving the lovers of power in the Vatican in the Pope's name. You know, this is what happens when you elect elderly men as the leaders of your institution, that you are going to probably, inevitably, experience this phase in which their physical limits fuel speculation about who's actually in charge. And that's just built into the system. I would also invite you to remember, though, that according to Catholic theology, being is far more important than doing. That is, who the Pope is and what he represents is more important than the pieces of paper he is signing in a given day or the decisions he is making. He represents the vicar of Christ on earth and the continuity of apostolic succession through time. And he will do that until he either dies or resigns. And none of his physical limits in the least impinge upon that, what you might call metaphysical role that every pope always plays. All right, finally, I want to close this week to, with a shout out to the place where my wife and I spent last week. So while all this stuff was happening that I just described, we were actually away. We were in the small Central European nation of Slovenia. And when I say small, I mean small. The entire population of this country is about 2 million. I mean, I could quote Dudley Moore from the movie Arthur and say they recently had the entire place carpeted which is not exactly true, but it gives you a sense of the small scale that we're talking about. And yet this is a place that definitely punches above its weight 
It's, it's a lot of big things in a very small package. Now, I, I have to confess before I go on here that I have a built-in bias in favor of Slovenia because my wife, Elise, is half Slovenian. Her family is entirely Slovenian on her mother's side. And, you know, if Slovenia produced the woman I love more than anything else in the world, then obviously it's got a lot going for it. And so I can't be strictly objective here. But let me just say this. So I was in Slovenia to take part in the 70th anniversary celebrations of the, the major Catholic newspaper there, Druzhinia, which is a word that means family. And Druzhinia isn't just a Catholic newspaper. I mean, it has a weekly newspaper at its core, but it also sponsors magazines and a book publishing company and websites and a pilgrimage company and just all kinds of things. It is a remarkable success story. And given that Slovenia is a deeply secular society, in which, according to recent polls, only a minority of Slovenes will even profess belief in God, let alone the Catholic Church. The fact that a Catholic media outlet is nevertheless able to continue to be relevant and profitable is a kind of remarkable thing, and I think there's a great deal to learn from it. In addition, we also had an opportunity to spend some time with the new president of the Slovene Bishops' Conference, Bishop Andres Sahe of Novo Mesto, which, by the way, is the city in Slovenia where my wife's family is from. And Bishop Andres is an inspired leader for the Slovene Church, studied in Rome at the Gregorian, lived at the Teutonic College. He has friends, as I like to say, from the United States to the Urals, and he has a very global perspective on the church, which in effect, reflects kind of the Slovene mentality. Yeah, they're a small place, but they were a critical player. They were a hub of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for hundreds of years. They continue to think of themselves as a crossroads for Slavic, Germanic, and Romance languages and cultures. And so this is a small local church that plays an outsized role on the global Catholic stage. They are also, I have to say, tremendous hosts. They made my wife and I feel imminently at home, and they went above and beyond the call of duty to make sure that we had a great time. So, thank you to Virginia and Ad Multos Anos, because really, in a time when the Catholic press in many parts of the world is struggling to stay afloat, your success is a source of never-ending inspiration for the rest of us. And so, keep it up. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for tuning in. We will be back here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, my charge to you is stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.